Recently, I was reading a biography of John Newton for a class, I'll admit. And, of course, he is most famous in this country as the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. But he is a tremendously fascinating guy, particularly because he was a mid-career change into ministry. Has some possible relevance. And he had this tremendous influence that is, goes far beyond writing one song, which, of course, is probably the greatest American you know, perspective, most popular American hymn. One of his greatest impacts and influences actually came from serving as the spiritual mentor and minister and guide and encourager for a young member of British Parliament, William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was first elected to Parliament when he was 21. He was rich, he was popular, and he really knew how to work the social scene. He was like a political Kardashian. And he, waste, he admittedly wasted his first several years in Parliament. He really focused on gambling and socializing more than, than legislating. But Wilberforce eventually came to faith in Christ, and he was so profoundly changed by this that he sought out Newton's advice because he felt called to resign politics and go into the ministry. And you would expect another minister to say, great, go into the ministry. But after a great deal of prayer and concern and consideration and conversation and correspondence, Newton actually convinced him to stay in Parliament as an evangelical voice in politics. At a time where being an evangelical was was termed having religious enthusiasm, and that was a bad thing in polite society in England. And because he stayed in politics, the world changed for the better. But it was not an easy path for him. He lost a lot. It took a long time to make that impact that he had. It required resilience in the face of repeated humiliation and defeat. And it was a resilience that came from knowing that his cause was greater than his cost. You see, Wilberforce embraced the extremely unpopular position of ending the slave trade in the British Empire. He worked very diligently with allies for four years just to get to the point where he could bring his first bill to a vote. And it was crushed, 163 to 88. Over the course of almost two decades, he would bring legislation almost every year and it would lose. He would be questioned for his loyalty to England. He would be humiliated. He would be embarrassed. And to see it through required tremendous resilience. At times he wanted to quit, and Newton had to remind him of the greater cause that was the source of the resilience that allowed him to get back up after every defeat. That that cause was more important than their personal comfort or success or reputation. And and it was a great cause. And through resilient hard work and belief in that cause and faith in God, finally in 1807, his bill to end the purchase and sale and transport of human beings passed Parliament 283 to 16. Well, today we're going to be resuming our series on the adventures of the New Testament church, and we're going to be looking at the resilience of that church and how, like Wilberforce, his resilience came from the understanding that he was on a greater mission, he had a greater cause.
The early church, too, could be resilient because they understood there was a greater cause. Life was very difficult in the first century for the church, but they could get through suffering and humiliation because of that greater cause. And so we're going to look at this passage to try and understand it and to see what it means for us as a 21st century church in a time of transition and in a time of turbulence. Our passage is Acts chapter 5, verses 27 to 42. And I will try to keep up with it here on the slides, but if you have a Bible, I would recommend following along. It's a lengthy passage. And it begins with a time where the apostles have all been arrested. They spent the night in jail. An angel freed them from the jail, but instead of saying, get out of here, the angel said, go back into the temple and keep preaching. And so now they've been escorted before the high council. Luke writes, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. As I mentioned, as the passage begins, the apostles have been arrested as a group because they've been teaching and preaching so effectively in the temple that lots of people are starting to believe. And so the leaders of the temple, the Sadducees, are very unhappy about this. They're angry. They're, they're jealous. So they arrest them. Ultimately, they have them beaten. And the apostles go away from that rejoicing that they'd had the chance to be beaten. 
as they experience their first real persecution and suffering, we see a church that is resilient in the face of opposition, that is resilient in the face of persecution. And the very fact that we are all gathered here nearly 2,000 years later, we see that they are resilient across the centuries. We also see in this passage why they are so resilient. Because over and over again in the book of Acts, we see that they realize there is a greater cause. That the cause is worth the cost. That cause is the message. The gospel. That's what makes them resilient. And that has tremendous implications for us. So gospel is a word that means good news. The gospel is the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. That he chose to be born and to live and to teach and to preach and to do amazing miracles and to suffer and to die a terrible death on a cross and to rise again to life. The gospel says that his death took our sins upon himself and that all who put their faith in him will receive forgiveness that we do not deserve and eternal life that we cannot earn. And we celebrate these truths of the gospel this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. The symbolic reminder of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ so that our sins could be forgiven. As we look closely at this passage, I think there are three key ways that the gospel makes the church resilient, capable even of rejoicing for having been beaten, capable of continuing to proclaim the good news even when the national leaders tell them to stop. Those keys are the truth of the gospel, the goodness of the gospel, and the source of the gospel. The church was able to preach in the face of powerful opposition because of the truth of the gospel. And the very first part of this passage are the words of the apostles to the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin. In verses 30 and 31, they lay out the gospel in a relatively direct fashion. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This message was not something that they had just made up. Rather, as the apostles emphasize in verse 32, we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, the apostles are 100% convinced of the truth of the gospel because they had been there and lived it. They had spent years with Jesus. And then even as they scattered, they saw him crucified. And then they had encountered the risen Lord. They had seen him. They had heard him. They had touched him. They had eaten with him. And the Holy Spirit had come into their lives, and they had seen the powerful work of the Spirit, both for them and in others who he had touched. And because the gospel is true, and they knew it to be so, they unanimously answer the high priest in verse 29, saying, 
We must obey God rather than men. They had absolutely no alternative but to preach the gospel. They just couldn't even help themselves because they knew they had the best news in the world and they had been told by the risen Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations. And they knew that no matter how fierce the opposition, they had to stand strong and keep preaching. And that's why verse 42 tells us that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And all of these things that they knew to be true then are still true for us today. Right? The truth of the gospel is undimmed. Although it's been nearly 2,000 years ago, I say our situation is not that different. Our culture certainly is. But they were witnesses to the gospel, and we have their witness. We have their testimony, and we can rely on it. We have an added bonus that they did not have. We have the example and witness of their lives. We can see the way they were changed from a bunch of cowering losers locked in a room to a bunch of towering giants who changed the world at tremendous personal cost because they had met the risen Jesus, because they had been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are still bound to the same mission that Jesus gave them, to go and make disciples of all nations, starting with those nations that have moved to within a two-mile radius of this building. So the question for us individually and as a church is what are we going to do about the truth of the gospel? Do we believe it's true? And if we do, what difference does it make in our lives? What are we going to do about the truth of the gospel? There is certainly opposition already in our culture to the gospel. It is unpopular, it is not trendy, it is not cool. It is termed closed-minded and arrogant. I think if we look around at Europe and America, the trends are clear. The opposition is going to be there and increasing in in coming years. So will we be resilient in the face of opposition the way the early church was? Is the truth of the gospel so powerful in us that we can stand up to opposition? Will we obey God or the tastes and opinions of men? I think, however, that there is more to this story than just the firm belief in the truth of the gospel. Because while I believe that such a, such a knowledge of the truth of the gospel could certainly give us a, a gritty and resilient determination to gut it out in the face of opposition... I don't think it can explain the fact that they're rejoicing about having taken a beating. Right? That, I think, comes from a deeper conviction than just knowledge of the truth. And that brings us to the second key of the resilience in the early church, and that is that the church rejoiced in the face of persecution because of the goodness of the gospel. We call the gospel the good news, and that is literally what the word means, both in the original Greek and gospel is an old English word. It means the same thing, good news. And it is good news. 
You see, we go around separating ourselves from God by sin. And for some of you, that doesn't happen very often, right? You're, you're mostly good to go. Maybe it's once a year or once a month. But as you move more towards me, you're heading into the daily, a few times a day kind of category, right? We separate ourselves from God, and he is angry about that because we're choosing to reject him when we sin. Right? We're choosing to separate ourselves and say that we're going to do whatever we want to do, not what he wants for us. And we do this, we deserve to be separated him, from him forever. We deserve to experience spiritual death. And yet, God loves us so much, he sent Jesus to do the dying for us so we wouldn't have to. Jesus died the horrible death of a rebel, not because he did anything wrong, but because we rebel against God. Romans 6.23 says it so beautifully. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do we feel this deep? In our core, do we really appreciate what God has done for us? Do we really feel how deeply we deserve punishment and yet how profoundly we are loved by God who spares us from it? The first century church absolutely felt it with the core of their being, every bone of their body. And I think that's why verse 41 says that after their beating, they were rejoicing that they could be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You know, They were rejoicing because the good news is so very, very good. They're rejoicing because they could be beaten and humiliated for the name of Jesus, the righteous one, who suffered being nailed to a cross for their sins and for ours. This understanding of the overwhelming goodness of the good news, this goodness of the gospel is what drove them to resiliently keep preaching and teaching every day in the temple and in their homes. In verse 42, there's a word that's translated preaching, but it's not necessarily the most common word for preaching. It literally means gospeling. The apostles got beaten, and they continued gospeling. They were proclaiming the good news. The goodness of the gospel is why they joyfully endured far worse stuff, right? This is just the beginning of what the apostles experienced in the book of Acts. And as we read the record of history after Acts ends, it got even worse than that. They died terribly because of the goodness of the gospel. This understanding of the goodness of the gospel is what allowed Paul to resiliently keep preaching through everything that he experienced. And one of my, I don't know, perversely favorite passages is in 2 Corinthians 11, 24-27, where Paul describes all the things that have happened to him in ministry. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Do you feel the overwhelming goodness of the grace and mercy of God that is at the core of the gospel? The God of the universe suffered brutally so that you could be set free from slavery to sin and death. And all you have to do to accept that freedom is to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. We need to let that soak into our being like sponges. Right? Let it permeate our hearts, our minds, our souls, our beings. That we have been set free by the only one who is good enough to set us free. That's the good news. That's the goodness of the gospel, and that is the power to overcome any opposition or persecution. And if we don't yet have that power, either individually or as a church, then we need to meditate on this good news as often as we possibly can. Because it is this that will pick us up after every defeat and persecution. If we understand how good the good news is, then it doesn't matter how bad the bad news is. One of the most wonderful parts about this passage is that it helps us not only see the church then, but it gives us a framework for understanding the entire history of the church all the way to the present, to understanding the resilience and the success of the church across the centuries that the church endures and thrives because of the source of the gospel. And somewhat ironically, our guide to understanding this is none other than the most famous and respected rabbi of his time, Rabbi Gamaliel. Certainly not a Christian. But a wise and kind man who happened to be the teacher of a very unkind man named Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, And Gamaliel is the voice of reason in a room full of would-be murderers. And after hearing the apostles proclaim the gospel, verse 43 says the high council, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But Gamaliel stood up. He said, time out, guys, time out, right? He gives them a short history lesson covering two previous popular movements that had kind of ruffled some feathers and got some people following along and and got people all excited. And, And in both of those, his point is that once the leader died, the movement quickly died because it was just built around human personality and human effort. And so he says, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Well, it's been almost 2,000 years. And the gospel's going strong in the world as a whole. What began with a handful of believers in Jerusalem now numbers in the billions. And yes, the church as a whole has often taken wrong turns. 
usually by neglecting the gospel. I believe that's why we see so much trouble in the Western church today, because we have neglected the gospel. But in the larger world, in the persecuted world, in the underground churches of the Middle East and the Far East, the gospel advances with tremendous power. And how can that be? It's just like Rabbi Gamaliel said, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Ultimately, the resilience of the church has nothing to do with human beings and their efforts, and it has everything to do with whether or not God is in the movement. This, I think at its heart, is what we are seeking in our visioning effort as a church. As we come together to seek God's will and God's vision, what he would have us do with our unique giftings and opportunities in these communities that surround us is to make sure that God is in the movement. Because God is the source of the gospel. And for that reason, the gospel will never fail. An individual church can fail, but the gospel will not fail. The universal church will not fail when she is faithful in proclaiming the gospel. And if we are opposed or defeated for proclaiming the gospel, then we know God is with us. Because it's not us getting rejected. It's God. And that should be a great comfort and encouragement and source of confidence for us. That even if we are defeated, if we are faithful to the gospel, God is with us. God's will marches on, and we know ultimately in the bigger picture, God will prevail. And the only question is whether or not Lake Ridge Baptist Church will be part of God's will. Will we be faithful in gospeling? Will we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in our corner of Prince William County, Virginia, and to the ends of the earth? Will we proclaim it if there's opposition? Will we proclaim it if there's persecution? And I am firmly convinced that the answer is yes if we hold firmly to the truth of the gospel, if we revel in the goodness of the gospel, and if we stand strong in our confidence in the one who is the source of the gospel. Please pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful for the great good news you have given through the gospel. Through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to you. We who long to be with you and yet at the same time long to wander off and just do our own thing. We who fall down and get up. Fall down and get up. Lord, we praise you that when we fall down, you will pick us up again. That when we seek you, you are there for us. That you forgive us. Lord, help us to hold firmly to these truths of the gospel. Help us to savor and enjoy and love and be excited about the goodness of the gospel. Lord, we trust in you, the source of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.